You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Daniel Klaus is a graphic novelist and the author of Ghost World, Wilson, David Boring, Ice Haven, Caricature, and many others. He's an Academy Award-nominated screenwriter, a frequent cover artist for The New Yorker. His new book is Mr. Wonderful. Thank you for joining me, Daniel. Well, thanks for having me. Daniel, I'd like you to talk. Your work is just among the most character-driven of any I've read or seen. And I'd like you to talk about how you come about creating characters. Do they come to you visually, or do they come to you in uh, prose somehow? Well, that's, I mean, it's interesting you say that, because that is my main focus at this point in my career. When I first began, I was, I was interested in other aspects of comics and the way it looked, or, or getting certain ideas across, you know, or expressing certain things. But at a certain point, I realized that all the things I really liked, all the works of art I liked, had had real characters, believable characters. And I think it comes from, you know, as a cartoonist, you're working alone in a room much of the time. And it's almost as though you're you're creating your own friends. You know, I think that's there's a real truth to that. You're creating, you're trying to create people that you kind of want to co-inhabit the world with. And so, um, so as I've gotten along in my career, I've gotten much more concerned with those those people seeming absolutely real and feeling like they're people who exist outside of the panels. So, uh, so it, I mean, in the case of the new book, Mr. Wonderful, it was it, he was one of those characters who just uh, kind of came in a flash. That, that, that doesn't usually happen. Usually there's a big trial and error period, but I was... Uh, I was just talking on the phone with the editor from the New York Times. They just sort of called out of the blue and uh, and asked me, you know, if I had any ideas for, for a weekly comic strip. And all of a sudden, I thought of, I thought of, you know, who would be reading this comic strip? I thought of this sort of the quintessential reader of the New York Times. And I pictured this kind of, you know, guy about my age, sort of of the same you know, ilk as, as I am, you know, of, of my type, my genus, you know, and, and, uh, I imagined a guy who's, you know, uh, the kind of guy who would read the, the actual newspaper version of the Sunday times every week. It's not the, you know, the guy who reads the articles online and all of a sudden I just had a flash of who this guy was and it. And so that, you know, I had this guy in mind as more the audience for the strip but he was so vivid in my mind that all of a sudden he became the uh, the protagonist of the strip, sort of all within this 15-minute phone call. You know, by the time I hung up the phone, I had I started drawing him. Well, you know, it, it's really interesting that you said you wanted these to be people that you could um, live outside of yourself, because that's I think for me the mark of the most uh, of the best kind of fiction is that. When we're done reading, we can go back and visit the work as if it was a vacation we took. It it exists right. and it coexists in our memories with the at the same level as as real experiences. Now, uh, you do a, a lot of really interesting work uh, visually with with your books, 
and I think it's just such an uh, a fascinating look. When I we open up Mr. Wonderful, it's very uh, cinematic. And do you do you write like a screenplay for your books? I don't at all. And and that was that was sort of a happy accident with Mr. Wonderful. I, I uh, when I was working on it, I became aware that I didn't want to have the the book version of the uh, of the strips that ran in the New York Times look exactly the same as just, you know, a book of those strips reprinted at actual size. And I was aware that they all split right down the middle kind of perfectly. And I thought that would be a, a really interesting format for a book to have this kind of wide, long, thin book. And, and as I started designing around that, I realized that it had the look of cinemascope, which is something I've always loved. I've lo- I just love the way that kind of big, widescreen Boy, I looks. saw 2001 on the Cinerama Dome. Wow. <laughs> I that's, remember uh, that. That's exciting. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, it's, it, there's no experience like it. And, and I love that format. I love mm-hmm. that kind of long, you know, it looks like the monolith in 2001 on its side. And, and I, uh, the, the strip had been very constricted in a way. It was, um, you know, I had one page per week to tell a fairly substantial story. And so I, I, it was prime real estate, you know, it's as we say, it's like we're cramming in every panel we can. And then to all of a sudden realize I had these huge vistas of space to explore, it was, it became, uh, it, it became a whole new thing. And all of a sudden it opened up the story and made, made the little panels not seem constricted at all because you kind of had a sense of where you were through these big panels I was drawing. You know, you talk about having a sense of where you were, and I think this is a theme throughout your work. You're a, a really prime purveyor of American suburbs, and not the small towns, not like, you know, the little kind of small towns that you find in horror movies, but the suburbs that kind of like sprawl out from the edges of the big cities. I think you do a really great job of creating those places, and you create some really great places in this book. So I'd like you to talk about just your sense of place and, and your sense, I think, of America that comes through just in some of the the landscapes and the vistas that you lay out for us. Well, I, I usually try not to identify the location of a strip unless it's absolutely essential. I, I like to le- I like that people have come up to me over the years and, and uh, they'll say, you know, oh, it's it's so great that you set Ghost World in Roanoke, Virginia, or you know something like a place I've never been. You know, and um, it's funny because Mister Wonderful is set in a very specific location. It's set about two blocks from where I live um, in Oakland, and it's I don't name any of the places, and I slightly disguise the exterior, but it's very clearly a coffee shop near my house, and it, it actually all takes place on one kind of minor thoroughfare in, in Oakland, Piedmont Avenue. And and um, I don't know, it's a world I, I spend a lot of time on. It's, you know, my daily walk. And I, I felt like I knew the world so well that I, it, I could somehow universalize it. If I were to draw the specifics of this world, they might resonate with people in, in places that aren't anything like that, just by, their, by the fact of them being accurate. Well, you know, um, I'd like you to talk just a little bit about creating the art for your books. Do you you sit down and do you start out in color and then convert Mm -hmm. it to black and white? Do you start 
uh, how does that work for you? I mean, what's the, how do you start the creative process? Of, for example, when you wor- start working on this for the Times, it's you know it's a very uh, it's a very old fashioned process. I mean, I just start out with uh, with ideas, little sort of visual notations. I usually try not to draw anything before I start drawing because I I find that dissipates all your energy. I you know mm-hmm. a lot of artists recommend that you redraw things over and over and over and I find that if you do that you can you can see the the kind of uh, exhaustion in the final artwork that doesn't it doesn't have that spark you know and, and it may not be you may not do the best drawing possible if you work the way I do but it's always spontaneous looking and and so I I try to just make visual notes and and little uh, you know um make a little kind of map of what I want the page to look like. And then I just start in drawing and it's all done in, in the way, you know, Windsor McKay drew uh, little Nemo, uh, you know, 110 years ago. It's all, uh, it's all just brush and ink, old fashioned India ink on an old white piece of paper. And, and then when it's all done, that's when I make my, uh, my nod to, you know, to the, the world of today by, scanning it and coloring it on a computer because that's really the only way you can do it nowadays well that's so interesting you know that especially that you mentioned uh, Windsor McKay and, and Little Nemo because that seems to be he seems to be a, a huge influence and it's so, so interesting how powerful that hand is that reaches from the past in terms of the storytelling and the art yeah I mean there's something I really love about being part of this continuum of people who who draw cartoons using very much the, as I say, the, the same methods that we used over a hundred years ago. And, and, uh, you know, it, it's, it seems to me, it's sort of, there, there's no way to better that method. You know, you, if you can control a pen or a brush, it's, it is absolutely, un, you know, it's your tool and you can do anything with it. Whereas, you know, now people are doing things on, on computers and it, it feels like, you're doing a little bit what the computer's telling you to do. It's not. It's not the same thing at all. Well, it, the computer has all sorts of built-in limits, which, on one hand, limits are always good. Yeah. Because, but the, I, the way you do it, it's unlimited. There's you're you're faced with a blank sheet, and you can make that hand move in any direction. Yeah. I, I mean, you know, I can't speak for anybody else, but for me, it's uh, every page is exciting. You know, it's never that never gets dull. You know, you imagine somebody who's like a professional chess player how does how does that not get dull after a while and you can imagine you know every new game is a new opportunity and you never know what's going to happen and that's it's very much like that with uh, you know there's the satisfaction of finishing a page and then taking out that fresh clean piece of paper and you have the chance right then to do the best page that's ever been done you know there's always that that opportunity Wow, that's so great. Yeah, it's fun. You know, one of the things that, that makes your stuff so powerful, is we, we were talking about this earlier, is you like to present us with problematic characters. I'm thinking of Wilson. <laughs> yeah, <okay. laughs> Tell us about that's a Wilson. Nice, nice way to put it. <laughs> Wilson was, was, uh, was another character who just sort of popped into my head without my wanting him there necessarily. <laughs> well, I can he, understand that. Yeah, he was... I was... Uh, I was actually in the, visiting my dad in the hospital, very much like Wilson does in the in the book, and having you know nothing to do in the hospital there. And I thought I would just draw some funny little comics to amuse myself. And 
this character who did not have a name at that point just started yelling at me from my sketchbook and I I found these endlessly amusing and I never thought I'd show them to anybody I thought it was you know it was really just doing it for my own sanity at that moment and and wound up filling almost an entire sketchbook with with these little stories and I, I found he was a guy you could just throw him anything and and there was a there was a joke or a dramatic moment or something surprising which you don't get from just any character you know it was it was one of those gift characters that just lands in your lap and it's you can't turn your back on him you know and you could just just any subject at all you know just say a light bulb and he'd have he'd have six panels all about you know the light bulb in some way that you weren't expecting and so uh so he kind of took over my life it, it, from that point on i came home from that time in the hospital and uh tried to get back to my other book i was trying to write at the at the time and it it seemed like it was uh like it was the most pointless thing in the world to to avoid this this guy wilson i i love wilson and you know i've got to say you don't have a really positive picture of late of of men do you <laughs> well you know it's uh i'm just turned 50 myself and so i think you know i think these these two books wilson and mr wonderful are me kind of coming to grips with that that character and they're two they're two sides of a similar character i mean mm -hmm. wilson is wilson has no interior life whatsoever at least that we know about he's all um verbal you know he, everything he seems to be thinking he's actually saying you know he's just walking around the streets <laughs> talking to himself and somehow in comics that that works you know if you if you had a movie of a guy just walking around talking to himself it would you'd think oh he's crazy or he's talking on his cell phone but um whereas marshall is very much the opposite marshall from mr wonderful he uh he's purely interior to the point that his his interior monologue obliterates the actual world around him to the to the point that he's he's barely able to even process what what he's seeing or even what he himself is saying you know i love the this idea of yours of the internal monologues and it kind of goes back i think in a sense to to uh ghost world with this idea that we're all living in our same in, in our own little worlds to the mm -hmm. point you know uh, what i call the hamster wheel in our mind <laughs> That you just can't get, and, and once you kind of get that going, sometimes it's really hard and distracting. You just can't get off of it. Yeah. Well, and especially a guy like Marshall who's spending all day alone, you know, sort of, uh, you know, pouring over his, his many failures. <laughs> and, uh, you know, he's clearly talking to himself or thinking to himself and carrying on conversations with himself. And at a certain point, that that becomes kind of the default way of of processing the world and and it's very hard to then enter back into a a dialogue with anyone else well you know I, he he like many of your characters is kind of haunted by his past and i love the idea and again this brings us a little bit back to ghost world is that um we're all haunted by our past we think of of ghosts when you say ghosts people think of apparitions from the dead coming back and, and that's just not the case i think what we're really haunted by is the mistakes and the things we've done. Yeah. And that's, I think, a, a powerful image that comes through uh, somewhat in Ghost World, but more so with Marshall, because he's really tied. Yeah, the, I mean, the Ghost World girls aren't old enough to be really haunted yet. Yeah. You know, they, they uh, 
but anybody anybody Marshall's age or Wilson's age, you, without even talking to them, you know they've they've got horrible things that they have to live with every day. <laughs> <laughs> it's, a, it's a thing we all you know. It's like the secret handshake between middle aged people. I think we know that about each other. <laughs> you know, uh, one of the things I love is the way that you externalize. Um, use your art and the, the words to externalize this internal monologue. And you you actually have in the book parts where his internal monologue blots out, the word boxes blot out the, wor- the word balloons. That's what's actually being said. And I'm right. wondering, do you have the script for what goes in what's being blotted out? That's a, that's a I shouldn't reveal that, but often, no, often it's... Uh it's you know I I try to put words in the margins that are suggestive of what the thing might be about, which mm-hmm. is not the same as it, it, whenever I've actually written out a paragraph and then just put a caption over it. I tend to obscure all the words that kind of key you into what's actually being talked about underneath the thing. So I had to sort of cheat and have all the all the suggestive words on the margins. But that's that's a trade secret I probably shouldn't reveal. But. Well, the, it, the whole the whole idea for that was sort of built into the the architecture of doing a story for the New York Times. It it had to do with knowing that I was going to be censored and restricted by this. You know, they, they were not going to allow Wilson to be you know a character on their pages or pretty much any of my other characters that I've ever created. There, I knew I was going to have to to deal with. With censorship and and with you know catering to their their demands, and so I thought if I built that into the story and made it about a guy who's all about self censorship and who is completely a, a super ego, he's a walking super ego. You know, he's not a he has he has no uh, you know he's not throwing anything out there. He's he's going over everything he's saying and thinking. And I thought that was a great way to sort of express what I would be going through as the story went on. And I found the, the more I was censored, the better it worked for the character. <laughs> what, did the New York Times actually tell you? Because i got to say that uh, while Marshall's much nicer guy to be around than Wilson... <laughs> um, Setting the bar quite low. <laughs> <laughs> um, he still is fairly cringeworthy. And what happens in the story is right. also fairly cringeworthy. Did the New York Times say, this is too embarrassing for us? There was no, they had no problem at all with any of the content mm-hmm. to their credit. But early in the strip, I have I, the one slight release I gave to Marshall was that he could say the word Jesus. And I put that in the very first strip to see if they would go for it. And it seemed to be fine. It went through all the editors, everybody, fine. So first couple of strips, Marshall's says, you know, Jesus, I can't believe this is happening or whatever. And uh, one week, the, the editor calls me up and says, well, you know, you won't believe this. We got a letter from some lady in Arkansas who says uh, she's really offended by the that Mr. Wonderful keeps saying Jesus and she's going to cancel her subscription. And I was like, oh, that's great. You know, that's what we needed, some controversy. You know, that's, and she's like, yeah, so um, so you can't use the word Jesus anymore. And I, Wait a minute, the lady from Arkansas gets to, gets to dictate what's going on? And it was a, that was apparently the case. And so at first I was, I thought, well, I, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to really change the way this guy speaks. And um, the the strip is getting more and more tense, so he'd, he'd be more likely to use that word. And, and after thinking about it, I realized that 
that only helped to try to write around that word made the language all the more vivid where I was I, he was so restricted that he didn't even have this release anymore and it, it somehow when I went back to do the the book version where of course I can put in all manner of you know horrible language I I wound up keeping it uh, the the way it was in the in the New York Times version because I I thought it it actually really improved it. You know, one of the things I love about your books is the way you use the art to externalize things that the characters are talking about or thinking about or that are even difficult to talk about. And I'm thinking of the little jerk version of Marshall right. who hovers over his head and some of the the, the flashbacks. And it took me a while, <clears throat> I have to admit, to figure out that the flashbacks, are there, there were the childish fantasies, and they're actually drawn in, as, as children in in child in a childlike style and i think that's right. really it's really a smart and and it's touching when we realize that when we twig to that yeah i thought you know i was that was my way of showing that marshall is a redeemable person that he has this this inner life that's tortured and filled with all kinds of anxiety that causes him to lash out violently <laughs> several times <laughs> in the story but that he you know he also has this this kind of gentle nature and a sort of a romantic soul underneath it all. And really what he wants is, is to, you know, find happiness in his middle age with some, some, uh, girlfriend, you know? Well, one of the things too, that I, that, um, is interesting. You must've had some, uh, negative experiences with the cell phone, eh? <laughs> you know, I've gotten, I've gotten used to it. It's funny. That's, that's the only part of the story that seems slightly dated to me. Mm -hmm. It seems sort of like we've all, gotten so beaten down by the the public cell phone thing though i do i i work at uh, local cafes quite a bit because of my uh i have a six-year-old at home and he uh you know it's hard to work with a with a six-year-old in the house and so i often go out and have you know two hours to work at a cafe and if somebody's sitting right across from me and barking into their cell phone i've i'm still sort of in disbelief that that's that that seems okay, and I usually put a, put my pen down and sort of just sit there and stare at them till they're done, and it never seems to affect anyone. It seems it's a very strange thing that that people feel comfortable talking about really personal stuff, you know, barking it at strangers five feet away, whereas they would never do that if uh, if they were just having a conversation. Well, you know, it's interesting because it's just another form of ec internal monologue externalized. It's what should be an internal monologue. Right. And, and I think that that works really well. The way you play that in the book, it works really well back and forth. I have to say, I often, like, I'm thrilled by hearing people on their cell phone because often there's great stuff, you know, stuff oh, that you would never hear otherwise. It's prime eavesdropping material. Yeah. And, and as are cafes, too, you can... Uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's a great place. And I'm wondering how much of uh, what happens in your in, in this novel um, came out of your eavesdropping at, at, at the cafe? Well, the you know, the just the idea of this kind of middle-aged blind date sort of came out of a, a, this cafe I was talking about in Oakland that the place is based on I was there one night just doing some work sort of after dinner and uh, and I noticed that everybody was around me was acting really awkward like it was these like middle-aged people who weren't talking to each other and just there was something really awkward going on and then I realized it was some like 
a bunch of people had met there for some blind date thing. It was some kind of arranged thing, and it was just like nobody was clicking. There was a couple where like one guy would be blathering, and you could see the girl like sort of looking off into space. There's something so odd about watching this. I just, you know, of course, stopped working and just sat around watching these poor old codgers stumbling through their blind dates <laughs> and, and thinking that was going to be me in five years when my wife finally wises up and leaves me. It sounds like a, a scene from Invasion of the Body Snatchers. It had a bit of that. It was, uh, I don't know, it was very strange. It's just, you know, you're not usually aware of that people are on their on their first date or their meeting. And after that, I... I became much more attuned to that, and now I'm, when I'm in a cafe, I'm kind of looking around for mismatched couples. And you you do often see that where where you see couples out on dates, and they're kind of shyly looking down at their food and not talking to each other, and you, it just seems awful to watch that. It seems like so unbearable. And this is something that you do a great job at is capturing this kind of embarrassment and showing it to us. And one of the things I like about this this book is the way you tilt the scales because when we first meet Marshall he's just this bundle of anxiety <laughs> he is not exactly the world's most likable guy mm-hmm. and we and we meet Natalie and she seems pretty sweet She's pretty and together <laughs> but as, as the plot proceeds there's a little bit of a, uh, a teeter-totter going on there you have to figure there's some reason they've been set up on this date and it, <laughs> You know, it's, it seems too good to be true. It it probably is. Uh, you know, uh, I talk about uh, just your your process of storytelling. Um, one of the things it seems to me that you insist uh, on in all of your characters and and much of your recent work, at least, and even uh, back to Ghost World, of making sure that there's a real kernel of honest character truth and that it's uncomfortable character. It's painful truth. You like the painful truth, don't you? I guess that's, you know, that's the kind of stuff I gravitate toward in, uh, in fiction or, you know, in, in things that I like to read or look at. or I don't know. It's just, to me, that's, there's the sort of a small inherent drama in that kind of a character. And I find that almost all of my friends have aspects of that personality you know they tend to be really high strung and nervous and uncomfortable talking to in in you know groups of people and it it's uh you know it's a it's a type of person i like and i I don't think about it too much i don't think you know am i doing this again or is this a certain type of character i drive and that's that's really debilitating but certainly other people notice it i just uh just got back from uh Switzerland. I had an art show there, and I did a bunch of interviews. And every single interview began with the the interview saying, "Why do you always draw losers and weirdos in every comic?" And well, I didn't really set out to do that. <laughs> I had a vaguely Aryan sense to it. Of there are so many Supermen to draw about. Why not do that? Well, you'll be getting to the Superman, and we'll talk about That's that. Right. That's right. Um, I wanted to talk, though, about the way... Uh, I love the way the story unfolds in this book. You, we all get the present and a nice flashback, and the panels are slightly different. They're this kind of warm, rosy glow, almost. Right. And, and then we get... You get... Uh, halfway through, we get two pages of Tim and Yuki. I love Tim and Yuki. <laughs> oh, good. It's, it's such a great... That was little... a risk, to throw in these two characters that are not in the book at all, and... You know, 
that it wouldn't be jarring, but I thought to put it, I put it in the exact center of the book. Mm -hmm. So it's also the pages you would naturally open the book up to. So I wonder how many people are opening it up and saying, oh gosh, Tim and Yuki, what's, you know, are they the main characters? I'm sure somebody at some point is going to come up to me and say, I really loved uh, your book about Tim and Yuki, because they will, that's, they'll just have <laughs> glanced at that before meeting me. <laughs> you know, uh, uh, there's a great party scene in here, and I'm wondering, it, I don't know why I thought of this, but it just really reminded me of a really, really old Peter Sellers movie. I don't know if Which, you've ever seen it, called The Party. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> know it well. <laughs> That's so, funny. I, you know, I just saw that recently, long after I did that party scene. And I didn't really think of it because that's such a crazy party in the, in the party. But, uh, mm -hmm. but it certainly has that, that uncomfortable feel to it, you know, where all these people are shuffling through your home. And Sellers has a way, too, of capturing a similar kind of vibe of somebody right. who's somewhat unselfaware. Un uncool, yeah, and, with yeah. all the hippies. Now, I talk about um, one of the things, too. I love this. There's a term in here that I absolutely love. Uh, it's two words, personal apocalypse. <laughs> I like that one too. Yeah. It, well, uh, have you ever experienced that? And uh, have, could you talk about just that kind of sensibility in your comics? Because that seems to be looming over a lot of your characters. Yeah, I think. I mean, in my other books, I've often externalized it to where there is a real apocalypse. Like mm -hmm. in uh, in uh, David Boring, there's you know it's possibly the end of the world sort of simultaneous to his very minor you know plot obsessions and and uh you know i i think i've always had sort of an apocalyptic <laughs> side to me i'm always i'm like you know the first guy to believe any crazy conspiracy theory of uh you know that it's all going to come crashing down and then i'm another side of me is very skeptical of all that stuff and i tend to quickly you know, find reasons why it's not going to happen. But I, I think on some deep intuitive level, I feel like it, it's a miracle that society is as uh, held together as it is and that it's, it seems much more likely that it, we would be living in a road warrior-like state at this point. <laughs> uh, I like the, the Stanislaw Lem notion. He, had, he talks about one of his books, he talks about what he calls the pericolypse, which is the apocalypse that's already come, only nobody noticed. Right, we haven't noticed. <laughs> it feels like that quite a bit, where you think, you know, you're, are you just avoiding the actual apocalypse that's going on for 90% of the people in the world? Right. Well, I think, too, there's a, a, a sensibility in your work that maybe the apocalypse might be preferable. <laughs> <laughs> right. It's a, at least you can be yourself in, yeah. during the apocalypse. Yeah. Well, you know, if we're all nuked, then we don't have to worry about blind days. <laughs> right. That's the right. least there, of our worries. There is a sense of that. I mean, I, I also like to, which is the, the way I am and all my friends are, is that we tend to elevate our very minor bourgeois problems into the level of apocalypse. And I, <laughs> I think that's, there's something... It, rather than being embarrassed by that and avoiding that, I think I think it's good for a writer to to dive right into that and kind of you know push push the the wounds and and see what's there because I think there's something valid to that as well as as being embarrassingly uh, invalid. Well, I think too. I, I love your sense of embarrassment because I think embarrassment is the most uh, deadly emotion. Embarrassment. Yeah, I. Well, I, th I think embarrassment is a 
is maybe a dying emotion too. I mean, I, I find, uh, you know, the younger, the younger you get, the less embarrassment you seem to feel in this world. You know, people are doing stuff online that back when I was in uh, high school would have been unimaginable, you know, sharing stuff that would have, would have seemed like the last thing you'd ever want anybody to know about yourself. And it seems like, um, you know, personal revelation has, has become a, the, the the bar for that has been raised so high that you have a sort of an old fashioned character like Marshall, who's, who's actually embarrassed. It seems sort of um, like a pathology rather than just, you know, a, sort of a common character type. Well, speaking of common character types for the comics, you're about to venture, or you already have ventured, into the world of superhero comics. Uh, tell us a little bit about your forthcoming uh, venture into this. Is it done yet? This is this is actually a comic I did. It was the last issue of my comic book, Eight Ball, the the final issue done uh, in I think 2004, mm-hmm. and uh, it was at the time. I remember sort of sitting down to think, thinking, what am I going to do for for my comic this this year? And and uh, I thought, well, the stupidest idea, the worst idea you could ever have would be to do a superhero comic. There's there's nothing left to do, and especially to do like a like a sort of a realistic superhero comic. That is the single dumbest idea there is. And then I thought. Okay, I've got to try it now that I've <laughs> now that I've said that to myself. So I I basically took a story I had written when I was 16 years old that was kind of a imitation of of Spider-Man to some degree just in, in terms of the family dynamics he was sort of a a lonely kid whose grandparents were killed and he sought revenge and I actually never wound up drawing this thing I drew the cover like 10 times and was never satisfied and then I just gave up and uh so I uh so I decided I was going to try to rethink that story and try to tap in to what I loved about Spider-Man and other superheroes when I was 16 years old and really kind of capture that kind of pop art sensibility that I responded to and, and see if I could actually write, a, write what I thought was a good story using, using that the severe limitation of having it be a superhero comic. Now, uh, are, what are you working on at this moment? I'm actually working on a sort of a long, very long, it looks like, graphic novel, the, a term I still find myself embarrassed to use, um, that I have no idea exactly where it's going or how it's going to turn out. So it's, I will just say I'm working on something long and won't describe it any further than that for fear of uh, looking like a total idiot in a few years when it's exactly the opposite of what I say now. You know, uh, one of the things that I thought was really interesting was how I and ultimately not surprising was how effective your your screenplay for for Ghost World was. So I'd like you to talk about that making that leap. Well, it was uh, it was pure trial and error. That was <laughs> I had no training whatsoever in in writing a screenplay at all, and it was a matter of of. Uh, you know, just writing it over and over and over and over and over a million times. And luckily we had producers looking over our shoulder at every step of the way, sort of guiding us to, you know, things that would work and things that wouldn't work. And, um, you know, to actually be on the set when it was filming, you could see immediately why things, certain things would never work on film and certain things 
worked much better than you'd ever imagine. And, and so I was able to kind of rewrite things at the last minute and kind of, you know, work on my feet a little bit, um, you know, trying to get the screenplay, uh, you know, as good as I could up to the, you know, five minutes before shooting. But it was, uh, it's a miraculous thing when films come together. There's so many things that can go wrong at every stage of the game. And it's uh, it's a very difficult thing to make a good film, and I more than ever admire anybody who can do that on a consistent basis. You know, it strikes me from the way you describe it is the polar opposite of what you do when you're writing your your novels, and not only just solo versus this kind of cooperation thing, but the way you write seems everything goes down when it goes down the first time that's pretty much the way it stays and this sounds like it's as you say continually revising yeah which i like about it i mean it you know in the comics you have to you know i try i try to think about my comics for as long as i possibly can till i actually start working to the point that i i feel like i know the world and i know what's going to happen and i know kind of the way the characters move and talk and think so that it's, it's you know, when I'm actually drawing, it's spontaneous, but it's guided by this knowledge that I, that I have about the world. Whereas in the screenplays, I like that you can, you can all of a sudden realize that a character isn't working and just replace it with another character with very simply, you know, two mouse clicks and you've got a new character, you know, and it's a, it's a very, very different thing. And, um, you know, I can't, I, I can never know what's going to happen with any of the screenplays I've written, so I try to I try to make them as close in my mind to to the vision of a a movie as I see it as I can, and try to express exactly how I'm seeing this movie kind of unfold in front of me, um, you know, on on paper. I mean, it's you know, it's I guess it's like writing a play to some degree. You have you have a certain amount of control over it, but then you hand it over to uh, any number of directors and you get any number of different plays. Do you have any uh, movies uh, in the hopper that are looking like they're going to get produced? Well, I have, there are several that I don't even talk about till they're actually like coming out in the theater. But <laughs> um, the, the one I'm working on right now is, uh, is a movie version of Wilson that uh, the director Alexander Payne has uh, has optioned and wants to make so. Uh, oh my God, that sounds, that would be exciting. Yeah, that's a horror movie. <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> he's going to make Jason look like a friendly guy. Absolutely. No, he's. I mean, he's. It's sort of. It's one of those. You know, pinch me, I'm dreaming things. I mean, he's. He's. You know, clearly. He's. He's one of my favorite directors, if not my favorite working director, and and sort of the. I've always felt the most appropriate guy for the kind of stuff I do. I felt a real connection with all his movies and well i remember seeing election in that scene when they're when the old men are playing the music in the basement and i just <laughs> i had to look away so yeah no he's he and i definitely share a share a certain worldview and and uh i i could not be more excited about uh, about trying to do this with him i've been speaking with daniel Klaus. his new book is mr wonderful thank you for joining me daniel Thank you so much for having me.
You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.